Would you pray with me now as we come before the Lord's Word? Father, once again, we ask that you would show us Jesus. We want to share in his goodness, in his love. Uh, We want to experience your glory through him. We know that this is not just uh, a mind game that we play. We are looking to the person who is our hope. And we need your spirit to guide us to him. We thank you for the good gift of your word that points us to the good gift of your son. We pray that your spirit would enlighten us to him this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we've seen, life as we know it can get shaken in ways that we didn't see coming. Of course, we're not the first to experience that, and other people have experienced it in far more traumatic ways than we have. Other people are today. Other people are. Other people have at different points in history. But we are experiencing something of that, and even when we experience it in pretty limited ways, it brings to the surface something that really lurks inside every one of us, and it can be buried in a bunker of self-reliance, but when the cracks start showing, then this thing that lurks inside of us starts to show up as well. And that thing, as it's described in the second chapter of Hebrews, is the fear of death. Our passage this morning is short, it's two verses long, and yet packed. Uh, Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he, that is Jesus, might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This is the word of the Lord. We want to know that it's going to be okay. That whatever happens between now and then, things will end well. And I can be told it's going to be okay. But just being told that, I generally find is not quite enough. I, I, I also have to be told why it's going to be okay. I have to have something to grab onto. One reason for that is that if I'm left without a reason why it's going to be okay, then I'm really left with my deepest concern. That is that I'm not okay and that other people might find out. And I suspect that some level, maybe within that bunker of self-reliance, you share that concern as well, that you know that you're not okay and that other people could find out. And that sense, that lurking sense that sometimes comes to the surface, is really the way that we often experience the fear of death. Jesus became like us and died as one of us so that, verse 14, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. 
He died to destroy the one who has the power of death. What, what is that? What is the power of death that the devil has? The devil doesn't have the ability to kill you. Uh, he can't touch you without God's own permission. The, the ability to kill you is not the power of death that the author to the Hebrews is referring to. We actually have to dip into verse 15 in order to see how that power of death actually works. <clears throat> the power of death that the devil holds and really does use powerfully is found in the fear of death. The power of death is found in the devil's ability to hold people in slavery by the fear of death. He does that uh, largely. One of his favorite tools to hold people in slavery is the tool of accusation, to accuse you. He whispers in your ear that you're not good enough. He says, you're, you're going to get set aside. You're going to get left out. And it's going to be your fault. And let me tell you why. And we know that he's not without ammunition. He doesn't have to make things up, although he's happy to do that as well. But he's got a lot of true things that he can tell us about ourselves. And you and I can fill in the list from there, right? He can whisper to us about harbored bitterness or harbored lust or some kind of shady dealing or the way we've neglected our responsibilities to those who depend on us and it's cost them. Or just a general pattern of selfishness. Things that we've done that we shouldn't have done or things that we should have done that we haven't done. And he whispers to us, you're unclean. And we, we hide these things until we can't hide them anymore. And once we can't hide them anymore, then we do our best to try to rationalize or give some reason uh, why... We should be excused for doing them. And as we hide and as we rationalize, what we end up doing is showing that we really understand how much these things actually matter. That there is truth to them and that the truth is dangerous to us. And the enemy loves to come and tell you and tell me that death gets the last word for you. That because of your uncleanness, you will end up ashamed and alone. Ashamed and alone. Not good enough and set aside as a result. Not good enough for anyone. And your enemy, my enemy, he knows that you can't stand that possibility. You, you look at the possibility of being ashamed and alone and you say, I can't live with that. I can't stand that. I have to find some other way and you'll do anything to escape that end, and the devil stands ready with a list of options. He knows you can't stand it. He says, you want to escape death, right? You don't want to be ashamed and alone. Come with me. I'll help you. I'll give you a way to escape the death that you fear. He has a big bag of tricks. He says, you know what? You can't do it, so just give up the effort for pleasure, just enjoy uh, anything you can find to enjoy. Indulge yourself. 
indulge yourself no matter what it costs other people, no matter what it says about other people. Just have fun. And he'll point back to the times when you've done that in the past, even ways that you knew were inappropriate, and he'll point back and say, remember the feeling that you had of life when you did that before? Well, there's more where that came from. You just got to keep doing it. So keep doing it, and I'll help you, and I'll give you more of that thing that made you feel alive in the moment. Yeah, maybe you feel, maybe you feel dead now, maybe you feel guilty now, but go back to the thing that gave you life before, and I'll give you more of it. And in one sense, that's a, that's a, that's a very simple sort of on-the-surface way of the devil saying, you're afraid of death, I'll give you a way, at, at the very least, to ignore it and feel like you're alive in the meantime. And he leads us into slavery. Sometimes it happens in more subtle ways, in more social ways. This can happen for people who are naturally self-doubting and for people who are naturally self-confident. One way is, is to require assurance from others, to come to others and, and to get them to tell us that we're good enough. Now, sometimes this can happen through manipulation. Sometimes it can happen by coming to other people and telling them how bad we are, sort of in the slim hope that they'll tell us, no, it's not quite as bad as all that. And trying to find life in the, in the relatively good opinions of others about us. We can't say that other people's opinions don't matter at all, but they cannot give us life. And when we try to find life in the opinions of others, it leads us into slavery. It's a subtle trick, tool that the devil uses to hold us in slavery by our fear of death. Maybe for the self-confident, <clears throat> it looks a little bit different. Uh, rather than feeling like, oh, I, need to, I need to try to find somebody who can tell me I'm not as bad as I'm afraid as I am. Uh, instead, it's simply performing really well as a Christian. For somebody who says, all I need to do is a little bit more of what I have been doing, and that's going to be enough. I, I know that I can prove that I'm good enough. I just need to work a little bit harder, and I know that I can. I can earn assurance from others. And in the end, it leads to slavery by means of the fear of death. This fear of death that can happen literally, but so often happens in our lives relationally. The fear of being ashamed and alone. So, here you stand with a longing to escape from death, whether literal or relational, and you have the devil standing behind you with a long list of the ways that he can help you to escape from death. A long list of strategies that make you end up enslaved to him. He holds that kind of power of death. And someone came to destroy it. Jesus came to be like us, to take on our nature in order that he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Jesus says it's going to be okay. And he says it in an entirely different way. The devil says you can escape at least temporarily, from the death that you're afraid of. He says to you, I'll, I'll get you out of this, at least for a little while. 
Jesus says, I already went through this. I already went through the death that you deserve. The shame and aloneness that you can't deny you deserve. I went through it for you. I came to become like you, to experience the very depths of the death that you do deserve. I realized what you only imagine. I realized the real version of it, and I did it for you. When Jesus dies for us, he is not only showing us what he feels about us. He's not only showing us that he wishes for good things for us. It's not only sentimental. It's something that does something for us. Jesus accomplished things by his death. His death really answers our fear of death. And the letter to the Hebrews describes two very specific ways that Jesus meets our fear of death. Two very specific things that he gives to us by dying for us. And those two things are cleansing and care. They answer those concerns about being ashamed and alone. He gives us cleansing and care. There's a picture of cleansing in the Old Testament that's worth considering in this context. This is in Zechariah chapter 3. There's a, an interesting picture of filth and cleansing. Zechariah writes this, Then he showed me, Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now, this is not a sort of a general sense of, no, I actually kind of like him, and, and I don't want you saying bad things about him, and you really don't have anything bad to say about him. Satan has real things to accuse Joshua of. Verse 3, Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the point is not simply, I don't really care about that. The point is, I'm going to do something about it. Verse 4, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, <clears throat> Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with, gar and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. A picture, an early picture of God's people who are chosen to be a kingdom of priests standing filthy before him, accused by the one who loves to accuse God's people, and God saying to the accuser, the Lord rebuke you, I am going to make my people clean. And God does. And maybe you've experienced even recently in your own life, uh, something of this feeling of being contaminated, uh, maybe in, in a very superficial way. 
maybe, maybe just this feeling of dealing with germs that are real in our world and other people looking at you as if you're carrying these kinds of germs and, and feeling like you're, you're sort of distanced from people uh, because they look at you as dirty. We have an experience of that just in uh, the, 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 the trouble that our world is facing in the form of a virus. And we experience it in big ways as well where we look at ourselves, the things we've done or failed to do, and see ourselves as unclean, as inadequate, as not enough. And our enemy loves to enslave by accusing. That's actually what the word Satan means. It means accuser. And he's got a lot to work with. Jesus is introduced in the letter to the Hebrews in verse 3 of chapter 1 as the one who made purification for sins. Having made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. A picture of the fact that what he did was enough. His work was finished. His work of making purification for sins that cleanses his people Chapter 10, verse 10 says that by God's will, we, we who are in Jesus by faith, have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once and for all. By his death, Jesus rescues you and me from the death that we know we deserve. The death ultimately of standing before God ashamed and knowing that we're going to be alone. Because Jesus has sanctified us through the offering of his body once and for all, as we stand before God, the accusations of the enemy cannot stick. And so his false offers to give us life lose their power. He stands behind you and whispers, You're dirty. And Jesus stands by you and says, you're clean. And so the devil's accusations lose their power and his offers lose their appeal. In Christ, we stand completely clean before God. That is entirely true. And that's something that we are learning to experience now. For now, we experience our cleansing as a process. Hebrews describes that as well in chapter 10, verse 14. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We're learning to experience his cleansing now. We're learning to put off the sin that he has cleansed us from. We're learning to live free from that sin by experiencing the freedom that Jesus has given us. He's cleansed our conscience, Hebrews says, from dead works in order to serve a living God. Now, the letter to the Hebrews is also clear that Jesus doesn't rescue us from everything that feels like death. He rescues us from death. 
He rescues us from being ashamed and alone before God. We will experience that completely someday. And at the same time, today, this letter is clear that we experience things that really do feel like death. And so there's something else that we need. Along with the cleansing that Jesus gives us through his death, we need something else that his death gives us. And that is his care. His care. Jesus entered our suffering in an ultimate way. And we share in Jesus' suffering in a small but real way. Chapter 13 of Hebrews, verses 12 and 13, describes this as well. It says, Jesus suffered outside the camp in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Here he is outside the camp alone for us. And Hebrews says, let us join him in his experience. Now, when that happens, it feels like death. It feels like we're being set aside. And the one who accuses us also loves to accuse Jesus to us. And maybe you've had this experience when you're feeling something that feels like death and you wonder, well, does Jesus really care about me? Why is it that he's allowing me to go through this pain, this thing, this thing that feels like shame and aloneness? And the enemy would come and whisper not only about us, but to us and say, look what you're going through. He doesn't care for you. You're alone. And Jesus' death for us answers every accusation. When you suffer for him, you're not paying him. You are joining him. You're joining him in the suffering that he alone has fully experienced. And because he has experienced it fully, he knows what you are going through now. He has felt fully what you are going through now. He's felt what, it, what it's like for you, and he cares. Shared experience, and you've probably seen this in your life, uh, produces and confirms sympathy. I, uh, for many years of my life, my attitude toward pain was a fairly philosophical one. I, uh, I didn't complain much when I was in pain, and I suppose there were a variety of reasons for that. And one of them, I realized at one point in my life, was that I really hadn't experienced very much pain. And then I destroyed my knee playing soccer and uh, had actually a couple of surgeries uh, afterwards and some complications from those surgeries landed me in bed uh, trying not to move the wrong way. Because if I moved the wrong way, I experienced excruciating pain. It was, it was terrible. It was scary. It was no fun. And it bore some good fruit in my life. There were times of lying on my back even in the middle of the night when it gave me the opportunity to see Jesus and his suffering for me and his care for me more clearly. And it gave me the ability a little bit more to feel the pain of others who were suffering. There was another man in our church who uh, was 
was suffering from the later stages of the results of diabetes and had experienced multiple amputations and had just had part of his leg amputated. And certainly I could not feel everything that he could feel. It would have been ridiculous for me to come to him and say, uh, I, I, I know what it's like for you. But being able to say things wasn't the point. The point was that I could feel a little bit better what it was like to be in pain. And as a result, I hope, care for him a little bit better. I could do that a little bit better. Jesus does that infinitely better for us. Jesus completed his work by suffering, by sharing fully in our nature and in our weakness and in our suffering. Here's what chapter 2, verse 11 says, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, that's Jesus and us, are all of one. In other words, Jesus has shared in all the things that we share in, our nature and our weakness and our suffering, even our temptation. And by doing that, he has joined himself fully to us, and he's joined himself sympathetically to us. That's the conclusion that is drawn in chapter 2, verse 11. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all of one. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. He's entered everything that we experience, and so he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. And so we find the assurance in chapter 4, verse 15, that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The accuser stands behind us and says, you should be ashamed and you will be alone. And our brother stands before us and says, I've taken all your shame. I've taken all your aloneness, so you don't have to be ashamed, and you will never be alone. I have cleansed you, and I am deeply with you, and I am not ashamed to be called your brother. So there's a real answer to the shame that threatens to cut you off, that threatens to cut me off. And when that real answer is given, a whole new world of freedom is opened up. If you could operate completely without the fear of shame and aloneness, just how free would your life be? I suspect that for many of us, it's freer than it used to be because we've learned to trust Jesus in these ways partly. And we're still learning. We're learning to live there. That fear of death can be a literal fear of death. I'm afraid that I'm actually going to die. And so in some cases, for some people, there's a temptation to give up on Jesus and say, I just want to protect my life. I don't know if any of us in our congregation face that right now. I suspect we don't. But we are subject to the slavery caused by the fear of death in other ways, in real ways especially in social ways. This fear of death can show up in the places where we invest ourselves heavily. So for us, as Christians, it can show up in church. 
We might not expect it to show up there, but it really can. The fear of being ashamed and the fear of being alone can show up even here. Here's one way that that can work. Every one of us, as if, if we're Christians committed to serving the Lord, every one of us has what we could really call sincere ministry longings, things that we really want to see happen, uh, things that we want to see other people learn, ways that we want to see people grow. Uh, we want to help people. We want to see ministry fruit. And those desires are real and sincere and good. And we're still learning. And so along with that sincere ministry longing, each one of us also wants to be known and accepted as good enough. And that can, that can really put a wrench in the works of our ministry. Each one of us really does carry along with us somewhere down in there a longing for significance in ministry. A longing for other people to look at the things that we do and admire us. A longing for people to say, wow, we really need to listen to you. Your opinions about what needs to happen at church or in ministry or in this particular area are trustworthy. We really ought to trust you. You know what we don't know. Please tell us what else we need to know. You matter here. You are significant here. And you know what? You do matter here. And you are significant here. But it's tempting for all of us to find our life in that affirmation. And that's not where our life is found. And when we try to, then we end up in slavery and we end up hindering our sincere desires to see fruit in ministry. And we each know that. What happens if you work hard to serve, you work hard to see fruit, to see people grow and change and be free, and maybe it happens, but you never get noticed for it. And nobody ever comes to you and says, how did you do that? Would you please teach us? We would love to hear more of your insights. And you don't receive that affirmation. Well, that can feel like an experience of death. Fortunately, when you get to be a pastor, you don't deal with those things anymore. Uh, you are mature enough that you're not afraid that people won't like you, and because you're a pastor, everybody's pretty happy with what you do. I'm lying. That's not true. Uh, this is true of every single one of us. And none of us is ever going to find ourselves satisfied, even with the good and true and legitimate affirmations that people do give us if we are trying to find life there. If that is our pathway out of being ashamed and alone, there is a better place for that affirmation to show up. Jesus has something better for you. You know what? That something better is not get over yourself. This isn't about you. It's not get over yourself. Because in a very important way, you can't. Because you're not supposed to. You were made in the image of God. You were made to be a significant human being. Not independently. Not in order to turn yourself into a black hole for glory for yourself. You were made in the image of God to be like Him and to be with him, to be dependent 
on him and to be somebody whose life actually does good things. Good things that don't draw other people ultimately to yourself, but that draw them to him. And the devil tries to turn that around. He says, use uh, what you do in life to get life for yourself. And Jesus says, I've already bought life for you. Because of Christ's death, I don't have to give in to the devil's cheap, enslaving tricks to avoid the death that I'm afraid of. We're in the middle of a uh, rattling time of life that reminds us uh, just how fragile life can be, that perhaps takes that fear of death and brings it closer to the surface for us. We don't know when those things will show up, uh, when they might get better, or when they might get worse. But there is something that we do know. The deliverance that Jesus gives us, that's described in verse 15, is something that we will experience in its fullness someday. This is described in Revelation chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. We experience this progressively now as we learn to apply the fact that Jesus has taken on our shame and our alienation so that we could be accepted in him and someday we will see it with our eyes. Revelation 12 verses 10 and 11 describes this final state. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. They didn't try to protect their lives. They didn't give in to the enemies offers to protect themselves, offers that ultimately would end up enslaving them. They didn't love their lives even unto death because they didn't have to. Their lives were bought for them. They were given the promise that they were clean and that they were cared for and that they would experience that in Jesus forever. That same promise is given to us. Father, as we face these rattling times, I pray that we would learn more and more what it means to trust in the death of Jesus that cleanses us and extends his care to us. We don't know when we might be called to trust in that death in a fuller way, perhaps even in the ultimate way. But would you help us to be practicing that now? Thank you for the privilege of living in fuller and fuller freedom as we trust in our great high priest who gave himself for us. We pray that you'd show us these things by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.